You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 117, covering the week of April 16th through April 20th, 2018. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, all usual housekeeping things. If you do like this podcast, please share it around on social media, and you can find us on social media on Facebook. You can like us there at Abbeville Institute. You can follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute, and you can subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville INST. If you don't want to go out and look for all those things, you can go to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you'll find all of our social media buttons. Click on those buttons, take you right to our social media accounts. And while you're there at the abbevilleinstitute.org, you can give us an email address, and we'll give you a free ebook, Kirkpatrick Sales Emancipation Hell. And you'll also get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday and our weekly email, which includes a link to this podcast on Saturday or Sunday. Also, while you're at your while you're at our webpage, you can click on the Amazon Smile button at the top of the page. You can help the Abbeville Institute while you shop at Amazon.com. It's painless. So go on and do that. Make us your favorite charity. And of course, you can also donate to the Abbeville Institute, which uh, is a tax deductible donation to the full extent of the law. We have monthly and annual options, as little as $3 a month or $5 a month if you're not a student, $3 if you are a student. You can help us explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. Also, if you want to donate annually, as little as $25 a year if you're a student or $50 if you're not a student, you can do the same thing. So go out and check out that button. Uh, It's at the top of the page. It says support. Click on that and drop down button will say donations or donor options. Click on that and you can find all of our donor options. Also, you can get our application, just going out to your favorite app store, Google Play, iTunes, whatever it is, and you can get the Abbeville Institute app. You can get this podcast, all of our lectures, so all of that stuff is there. It's our mobile-ready application to get you into the abbevilleinstitute.org. And we do have a forthcoming event. We have our summer school, which has been uh, put up a notice for that. It's July 15th through 20th. It's the Southern tradition, or the I'm sorry, it's Southern identity through Southern music. And so it's going to be a great time. We're going to talk all about music, different varieties of Southern music, talk about the origins of Southern music, uh, the meaning of Southern music in terms of um, uh, what it means for Southern culture, Southern identity. So it's going to be a great time. We hope to see you there. Space is limited. We do have scholarships available, but we don't have that many seats. So if you're interested in going to our summer school, going out to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org, check it out. It's at the middle of the page. And then contact Dr. Livingston to reserve yourself a seat. So uh, that is going to be a grand time. Again, a couple of months, three months away, July, middle of July. So we do have Bobby Horton, by the way, as our featured banquet speaker slash musician. So it's going to be a great time. Look forward to seeing you there. All right. So this week, uh, I actually want to start this week with a piece that wasn't on the website. And that's because the city of New York has decided to remove a statue This is something that's commonplace now. We hear it all the time. Statues are being removed. But, of course, this one's in New York City. And it's a statue to a Southerner, uh, Dr. James Marion Sims. He was uh, born in South Carolina. And he attended uh, South Carolina College there and then uh, took his medical studies uh, at the Medical College of Charleston. He also graduated from the uh, Jefferson Medical College in, in Philadelphia. Uh, And he opened a women's clinic in uh, Montgomery, Alabama in 1845. Um, But the statue has been removed because there were charges that Sims, uh, some of his practices uh, were 
less than above board, uh, particularly when he was, uh, he's often called the father of gynecology, for example, but um, some of the procedures he was doing at a time when no one used anesthesia were, of course, uh, conducted on slave patients. So uh, this particular statue now has been removed, and uh, it's going to be put where he was buried. He's actually buried in New York, but this guy was an important individual in the history of American medicine, and because of the fact that he had a past that included his time in Alabama uh, operating on uh, slaves at the time who were slaves, and they said that they didn't give consent. Though, uh, if you read the literature, and there's actually a Washington Post piece on this that just came out, um, if you read his autobiography, he did essentially say, well, I mean, they did give consent. So it's, 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 up, it's debatable as to whether he did or did not. But even the Washington Post article admits that he wasn't using anesthesia because nobody used anesthesia at that time. It just wasn't done. Um, and so this was not uncommon. Uh, and in fact, you know, having any type of surgical procedure done in the 19th century would have been very painful no matter who you were. He was also uh, practicing medicine in London and Paris during the war. He wasn't even in the United States during the war. And he was uh, appointed um, a, a, a surgeon to uh, the wife of French Emperor Napoleon III. So here is a guy that was respected not just here in the United States, but all over the world. Uh, he was uh, the president of the American Medical Association, was the author of several uh, major medical papers and books, uh, he was the founder of the New York Cancer Hospital. So this guy was so important to the American medical profession, but because of this brief period of time when he was working in Alabama, he's now considered to be a pariah and has to be moved. But this actually gets into uh, the reason why the Abbeville Institute exists. In fact, what I was talking about there is actually from a piece that we published in April uh, a couple of years ago, almost Almost to the day, a couple of years ago, April 22nd, 2016, Healing the Wounds of War by our resident Japanese scholar, John Marcourt. And um, he talks about not only Sims, but also John Allen Wythe of uh, Guntersville, Alabama. But the problem is, is that you can't have anything like this anymore. There is no reconciliation. There's no reaching across the chasm and shaking hands and saying, uh, you know, there were important Southerners. We should celebrate these people. Um, we may not agree with everything that happened in the 19th century or the, or the social values or norms of the 19th century, but J. Marion Sims was certainly an important figure in the American medical profession. Uh, and, but to take his statue down simply because of modern social norms is problematic, to say the least. And this is, this is what we're facing. So Sims is a minor figure. It's not like removing a statue of George Washington or Thomas Jefferson. But we have seen statues come down, of course, of Lee and Beauregard and others. And so we're seeing it now with individuals. You think you scratch your head and think, well, why in the heck would even anyone care about that? Um, because this guy was so important, he was given a statue in New York City. But this gets into the issue of modern heresy. And there was a time when Southerners were recognized as a valuable part of American society. And we're gonna, I'm going to talk about two pieces that, that get into that. But if you don't toe the politically correct line any longer, if you say things that the modern politically correct left or even mainstream society deems uh, controversial, you're going to face pushback. And, of course, we had we talked about this last week with one of our uh, faculty members or who had spoken at a summer school, Tobias Lentz, who was uh, confronted at the University of South Carolina. And then this week we ran a piece 
on Monday again by I'm sorry on Wednesday again by uh, Don Livingston entitled Modern Heresy and it gets into the attacks on Marshall DeRosa at Florida Atlantic University by a bunch of students who take what he said out of context and really don't know anything to be to be honest and it's not their fault as Dr. Livingston points out in this piece it's really not their fault this is what they're taught they're taught platitudes and slogans and chants they're not really taught any real history and so when they go and they attack Marshall DeRosa because he took money from the Koch Foundation to have to run a prison school. Now, uh, this would have been seen as something that was important for reform. DeRosa wants to get prisoners, many of whom are minorities, out of the prison system to be independent individuals and even to vote. I mean, he's, he's considering that maybe these people need to come out and vote. Those are positions that would the left usually celebrates. And in fact, there was a hit piece written on, on uh, Dr. DeRosa where they were critical of, of his work in the, in the prison only because of who he is. Otherwise, I guess if he was teaching Marxist theory and uh, he was teaching uh, you know, victimhood uh, theory, well, then it would have been fine to go into the prisons and teach these people. But once you're teaching them independence and you're teaching them Marshall DeRosa is a very Christian man, you're teaching them Christianity, when you're doing that, well, you can't do that. That's modern heresy. And so this is why the Abbeville Institute exists, because of the unintellectual climate that we live in in the United States. Uh, one of the things the students keyed in on is something that he wrote, and they picked up a couple of pieces that he wrote for the Abbeville Institute, in fact. One was on um, Confederate case law. And we talked about this on the podcast but one thing he said in that piece is where he placed the blame of slavery, for example, back on African societies as well. He said this is, this is part of the, of the issue. And, of course, the, the textbook that's used across the world on the African slave trade draws that same conclusion. This book is entitled uh, Africa and Africans in the Making of the Atlantic World, 1400 to 1800. And uh, John Thornton, who wrote the book, it was published by uh, Cambridge University Press, he uh, is no Abbeville Institute scholar, and he's just an honest historian. And this is what he concluded in the book. He said, quote, We must accept that African participation in the slave trade was voluntary and under the control of African decision makers. This was not just at the surface level of daily exchange, but at, even at deeper levels. Europeans possessed no means, either economic or military, to compel African leaders to sell slaves. And so this is the generally accepted position on the African slave trade now by scholars. But, of course, when Dr. DeRosa says this, it's immediately attacked because these people are unintellectual. They have no conception of what an intellectual environment means. Again, they're getting slogans and platitudes and chants, and that's because that's all they're taught to do. That's problematic. And, of course, then they point out in this particular uh, piece that... Um, He, even though DeRosa calls slavery morally reprehensible, which nobody mentioned, and he says this, slavery is morally reprehensible, uh, he is also talking about a case in Florida, actually before the Confederacy was formed, where you had a slave accused of rape and convicted, uh, was sentenced to death, and then his conviction was overturned by a higher court in the state of Florida. And so DeRosa actually cheers that for the rule of law. Because here is a person that's not supposed to have personhood. This person is supposed to be chattel. But yet, as the judge points out in the case, in the, in the appellate court, 
that that person has a right to a fair trial just like any other person. So it blows apart this entire narrative that these people had no rights. They were just simply chattel. And that's what DeRose, he cheers the decision. And of course, you look at this and say, gosh, that's, that's far preferable. Here is the rule of law, which is what DeRosa says, working to protect slaves from the arbitrary abuse that, unfortunately, black Southerners would undergo after the war is over when you had lynchings and other, vac- uh, other acts of violence, racial injustice. So here the, the, the court system is actually working to do what it was supposed to do, which is protect people from arbitrary power. And his whole point about this is everything is about power. And I think you, it, it's, it's a point that we've made on this, or I've made on this podcast several times on the, on the Abbeville Institute website several times. When you look at the issues that plague the United States in the 19th century, in the 20th century, you know, in the 18th century, and you talk about the sectional conflict, what is at the heart of the sectional conflict? It's not, it's not moral issues. It's power. Who is going to have the power? Which, which section is going to have the power? How is that going to be decided? I mean, this, this is the main issue. It's all about political power. This is Michael Holt's position. Uh, and Holt is saying, look, all of the issues can be broken down to one thing, power. Which section is going to control the government? Which section is going to control the spoils? And how is this going to work out? What type of political economy are we going to have? So all the issues that you had in the 19th century boil down to that one thing. And the rule of law is there to arrest tyrannical government and to arrest arbitrary power. This is all he's saying in this piece. And, of course, he's excoriated for it by these uh, rabble-rousing students. Of course, the university has supported DeRosa, which is a great thing. They've said, look, there's been no complaints against him. Uh, and anyone who knows Marshall knows, and as Dr. Livingston said, you can't find anything he's ever said, written, or done that would, that would call him, that would prove that he's any of the names that these people are calling him. Yet, of course, the charge has been made, so DeRosa is spending a lot of time defending himself where he could be productive doing something else. And so the fact is, uh, the university is saying, look, we have no evidence, and, and rightfully so, that Dr. DeRosa is anything but a great scholar, uh, a conscientious professor, good to his students, and that's what you expect out of a university setting. When, of course, we have university presses on the left going off the rails all the time, and no one's ever scolding them for this, except you get it in uh, you know, conservative media, quote-unquote conservative media. There was this professor uh, a couple of days ago that said some very nasty things about Barbara Bush, for example, and she was raked over the coals and deleted her social media account because some of the things she said. But, and that also shows you, and if, you, if you've seen that story and, and seen what she, she said, um, it shows you that her whole existence is tied up into her position. She's a tenured professor. This gives, her, this gives her worth in society, whereas if she wasn't that, no one would really care what she thinks. And that's the only reason anyone does care what she thinks. And in reality, not many people do care what she thinks, but again, it gives her worth. But there was a time when we had a real intellectual climate, when someone like Sims could have a statue erected for him in New York because of who he was and how important he was to the American medical profession, when people would be willing to say, all right, well, um, you know, we may not agree with everything, that he, the, the society in which he worked in the 1840s, but you know uh, he has contributed so much to the American medical profession. Let's build a statue to uh, Dr. Sims in New York. But now, because of modern presentism, we can't do that. He has to come down. And there's even talk about not even putting the statue back up. They're going to move it to where he was buried, but maybe not even put the statue back up. Some people want that. 
And that's unfortunate uh, because uh, this is a, an individual, and of course we're looking at this with Lee and Beauregard and the attacks on the founding generation, all these things. This is, this is just the beginning. Uh, Lee, Beauregard, Forrest, all the Confederate generals that are under attack, Confederate soldiers, monuments, whatever the case may be, it's only the beginning. Uh, I think at some point, and there's, there's an uh, article out that uh, the city of Birmingham is suing in federal court, saying that they can do whatever they want. The state has no control over the city of Birmingham. Uh, and this is going to be an interesting issue, because if that's the case, then they can do whatever they want to Confederate monuments or anything. Now, there is a there is an interesting uh, position to be made here for decentralization, uh, an interesting question that, that raises. But on the other hand... Um, where does this stop? I mean, where where do we, and, and of course, often people say, well, that's, that's an ideological fallacy, a logical fallacy, a uh, slippery slope, you know, but it is, it's happening. We, we, we've talked about it. We started talking about it years ago that this was going to happen, and here it is. We're living in it. But there was a time when Americans recognized Southerners as valuable contributors to American society, and a couple of pieces we wrote this, this week uh, show that. The first, uh, written by J.L. Bennett, uh, The Mars Elysee of the South plays on for now. What this piece is about is Maryland, My Maryland, the state song of Maryland, written by James uh, Ryder Randall, who um, was an important member of Maryland society. Now, he wasn't in Maryland when uh, the Baltimore riot, quote-unquote, took place. If you're a Southerner, you'd call it the Baltimore Uprising. But Randall heard about it, heard that one of his friends was, uh, was, was mortally wounded in the, in the contest between these Union soldiers trying to get through Baltimore from Massachusetts and the citizens of Baltimore. And so he goes and he pens this piece, and it becomes a Maryland state song later on. And this shows, I mean, it became the state song in the, uh, in the 20th century. And it shows that there was a time when Americans could recognize that the South was an important part of American history and that Southerners were an important part of American society. In fact, in the 1960s, during the centennial, the uh, Maryland governor, um, Millard Taws, Taws, excuse me, uh, proclaimed uh, the first few days of 1961 to be James Ryder Randall Week. Uh, this would never happen today. In fact, there's a, there's a current call for removing the... the song as the official Maryland state song, and that's unfortunate uh, because they're missing out on an important part and valuable part of American history by doing this. And I was watching the uh, Legends and Lies uh, quote-unquote documentary on Fox News the other day, and they had I watched the, uh, the episode that dealt with this particular event, and it talked about how three of the Massachusetts soldiers who were killed had uh, dis- or descendant from members of the founding generation. Well, it doesn't talk anything about the Baltimore citizens that were killed and who their ancestors were. Many of them were also related to members from the founding generation. In fact, James Ryder Randall was related to Francis Scott Key. And so we miss that part of it. Uh, we miss the connection between the South and Southerners who participated in that war in the 1860s and the founding generation. It was clearly there. Clearly there. 
uh, many of the men in the founding generation, the best story we have of this is not necessarily, well, it is, it is part of that, but the best story we have is when Richard Taylor, who was a Confederate general, was confronted by a German after the war was over. And the German was going to instruct him on what it meant to be a good American. And Taylor says, well, you know, I need that information because uh, my family's been here for 200 years. They were here at the founding. They served in every major American war, members of the founding generation. My father was president of the United States. But you really need to, uh, to tell me about what it means to be an American. So these Southerners were, were just as much American as Northerners. In fact, in many cases, more so, because they had been here longer when you're looking at that German soldier, Union soldier, general, in fact, who was criticizing Taylor for his adherence to the Confederacy. But it wasn't just things like Maryland, My Maryland in the early 20th century, that particular song, or uh, Dr. Sims, but there was a time, even in literature and pop culture, when the South was considered very much part of American society, and there was a certain draw to it uh, for Americans. And the piece on Friday is about the, uh, the novel The Outsiders. Now, the film The Outsiders, I, I've never read the novel, but uh, the film I saw, it came out in the, in the 80s, and uh, it was an interesting film. Of course, it had a lot of the, uh, the actors that would become more famous in the 80s, and you know, people like Patrick Swayze and Tom Cruise and some of these individuals. Uh, and they played the Greasers, right? So the, the story of the Outsiders, you have these two groups, the Greasers and the Sochas. And uh, they're in this rumble with each other. And uh, there's, a, there's some uh, a crossover. One of, the, one of the girls in this high school is a Socha, ends up uh, liking one of the Greasers. And, uh, you know, so you have that. And you have, uh, of course, the, the Greasers become heroes in town because they save these kids from a burning building. And uh, it's, it's an interesting Interesting uh, story, but part one of the main parts of the story is when two of these guys are on the run, they're reading Gone with the Wind, Gone with the Wind, and it's great because here we have, this book was published in the centennial period, and here you have the southern theme, and of course the author of the book is from Oklahoma, so you have this southern theme running through the book, you have Gone with the Wind, and you have, as Michael Martin points out, uh, at the end of it, uh, he said, uh, you know, it could be argued that the outsiders could be a metaphor for the Civil War itself. Written around the time of the centennial, it talks about two groups who are socially different but linked together by their location and education. The Greasers and Socias are just like the South and the North. Even though both sides were culturally different, they were both American and had a lot in common. Both sides liked to fight, drive flashy cars, go to the drive-in and drink. They merely expressed it in different ways. The real tragedy was that they had to constantly be in conflict to realize what the important things in life were. And I think this is part of reconciliation. People recognized after the war was over, okay, let's bury the hatchet again. Let's have, let's have memorials. Let's have Maryland my Maryland. Let's have a statue to Dr. Sims. Let's have statues to Confederate leaders. Booker T. Washington is writing, these statues would be great for both uh, white and black Southerners to know who the real heroes were in the South and how they were good for everyone in the South. It didn't matter your race. It was important to know who these heroes were. So let's do that, and let's bury the hatchet and move on. But that whole idea of reconciliation is under attack. There's a segment of the population that believes that reconciliation should have never happened. David Blight uh, is one of them, uh, the historian who I've already 
uh, in my own podcast I talked about. But you, you have that position that reconciliation should have never happened. And here we have all mountains of evidence of, of Americans who believe it should because they recognize Southerners as American. They recognize that part of American history is an important component of America. But because of the unintellectual climate in which we, in which we live, that's heresy. You can't say these things anymore. It's heresy. But again, this is why the Abbeville Institute exists, because we will publish things like this. We will say, wait a second, there's, we're still interested in reconciliation. We're still interested in the political ideas in the, in the, of the South. We're still interested in Southern culture. We're still interested in the Southern tradition, the good parts of it. We're still interested in those things because they matter. And I'm going to talk about one very important part of that in the last piece. And it was actually a piece published on Monday, but I'm going to talk about it last because that important part of Southern culture is what we really need to hang on to. Uh, the piece on Tuesday was a book review by John Devaney, Zombies No More, Secession, Nullification, The Academy. And this piece actually kind of swings back the other way, that there are people in the Academy who are actually starting to think and take very seriously some issues like nullification, secession. These particular issues, which had always been seen as taboo. You, know, you have, uh, there's a funny video out there, if you haven't seen it, it's Tom Woods, when he wrote his book, Nullification. I think that book came out in 2012, somewhere around there. And uh, he wrote this, and while he, when he published it, he did this little video with Bob Murphy entitled Interview with a Zombie. And um, so Tom Woods, is, it's like a book show, and he's being interviewed by a zombie. And all that uh, Bob Murphy dressed as a zombie says are things like racism and slavery. And, uh, you know, Woods tries to respond with an intellectual argument, and it doesn't matter. Slavery? You know, racism? Uh, so th this is what we're dealing with. But this is why I think, uh, this is why Dr. Devaney, called it Zombies No More, because there are academics who are taking seriously these issues and saying, you know, maybe there's something more up to this than what we realize. Maybe there's something more to this American tradition of secession and nullification and decentralization than we realize. Maybe we should spend some time studying this thing because it would be important to know it. It would be important to understand it in the American context. And so um, I always bring up a, a, a book, uh, The Stamp Act Crisis. I, I brought it up in a lecture I gave in 2016 in Atlanta, how uh, Edmund Morgan uh, actually wrote in that book, titled a chapter, Nullification, because during the Stamp Act Crisis, there were, there were colonies nullifying British law, and not just in the South and the North. In fact, the Suffolk Resolves were a form of nullification, so you had nullification as integral in the American political mind. Same thing with secession. I mean, what else is independence but secession by another name? This is that's why we call it the War for Southern Independence, because it's secession by another name. So what is that? I mean, independence, that's what we're talking about here. So this tradition is very important, this political tradition. Now, of course, you have to have something to defend. You have to have a culture to defend, a society a people, a place, something to defend in order for that to work. It's not just enough on taxes. It's not that taxes are never going to be a rallying cry. But if something is firmly under attack, your civilization, for example, then secession becomes a remedy. Or if your political culture is under attack, then you can utilize things like nullification or decentralization to fight back. And that's exactly what it's therefore, and in fact, Dr. Devaney points out there's one particular essay in this book where he says, you know, the, the, the author of the book 
is saying that nullification is going to lead to violence. Well, that's ex it's the exact opposite of what Calhoun said. Nullification was there to prevent violence, to prevent the dissolution of the Union. Because if you could nullify, and you could say that law is unconstitutional within our borders, or you use the, uh, the, the negative of a state over a federal law, if you could do that, well, then you would actually prevent violence because you would not have a state wanting to leave the Union. There's, there would be no question about it. You could prevent political violence in that state because the political culture of that state would be reflected by the action to nullify. So it would actually be better, better, more peaceful to employ nullification than not. And this is the whole point Calhoun was making. But it's interesting that there's actually academics, not just people like us, but people who are academics, mainstream academics, who are now looking at this issue and saying, well, maybe we need to talk about nullification. Maybe we need to talk about secession. These are interesting topics. But that said, um, there is one part of Southern, the Southern tradition that I think is so important in this, in this climate, and that is the tradition of the gentleman. And people say, well, this is just, just made up. Southerners weren't really gentlemen. They, they just weren't. They were nothing. There certainly was an aristocratic gentleman culture of the South. And that's one thing that we try to emphasize at the Abbeville Institute is that particular position. And, I, and the piece on Monday was entitled A Bloodless Victory. And uh, it's a reprint of a speech by Governor Pickens of South Carolina right after the bombardment at Fort Sumter. And the interesting thing about this speech, of course, Governor Pickens was the grandson of Andrew Pickens, who was the great South Carolina patriot. So, I mean, he's directly descended from a patriot, from a founding, member of the founding generation. Andrew Pickens, well, there was perhaps, he was right up there with people like Sumter and Marion and Rutledge in the state of South Carolina. You, 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 Pickens was one of the characters, one of the individuals who made up the character of uh, the, the Mel Gibson character in The Patriot. You know, he was a composite character, but Pickens was one of them. And so you can't get around the fact of how important this guy was. And now his grandson is the governor of the state of South Carolina, now the for a time the Independent Republic of South Carolina. And, of course, uh, his sons had also served as uh, one of his sons as governor of South Carolina. So this was an important family, the Pickens family. But he comes out after this event, and he makes a speech, and there's all kinds of stuff in here, but I want to focus on parts of the speech that are important. He says this, I would never counsel my fellow citizens in the day of proud victory to anything else but a noble forbearance and a noble generosity. The man who defended that fort has many of the attributes of a brave soldier. Let us not only show that we are a brave people, but a generous and, mag and a magnanimous people and that we would not use any extreme or exalting language calculated as unworthy of a high-toned and chivalrous race. And there was applause after that. Yes, yes, this is what we are. We need to be high-toned. We don't want to stoop to their level. We want to be gentlemen. And I think that's an important part as we're facing this onslaught. We need to remember that gentlemanly conduct is important. These people were being faced with a war, and yet here they are still saying we need to be gentlemen about this. He continued later on, uh, and an important part of this particular speech, which I need to find in the stack here. I had it. Here we go. 
He continued later uh, to applause as well, each time he did this. He said, quote, All we ask is plain justice, honor, and truth from others. And all we, all we ever shall submit to is, and I trust we shall ever extend to all others, the justice, the forbearance, and moderation which become an enlightened and great people. Now, fellow citizens, go to your homes. Be moderate and abstain from every act and every sentiment of extreme language or unworthy violence. Show that you are not only really free, but that you deserve to be free. Keep cool, keep firm, keep united. A brave people are always generous and always magnanimous. We can meet our foes clad in steel and make them feel the weight of our metal upon any field of battle, but at the same time we can treat them with the noble magnanimity that always belong to a generous and a brave people. We can defeat them, but we need to be gentlemen in doing it. The other side doesn't know how to respond to that. They never have. They want us to shout back and use all their slogans and chants. We can't do it. That's not what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. And he concludes the speech with this. He says, We have now taught a great lesson to this confederacy. It is now clear that for all purposes of justice, of equality, and of common liberty, our American institutions are as strong as any that have ever been offered for the government of man. But when they are perverted to the purposes of injustice and fanaticism, of insult and wrong, that those same institutions are powerless, and that when they lose that power which comes from right, that as far as the American people are concerned, they are impotent and imbecile, because the heart, the great heart of the American people, in reality, beats for what is right. And there was immense cheering for that. We stand upon the inalienable right of a people to choose their own institutions, and that all just governments rest upon the consent of the governed, that any government that attempts to exercise power without this consent not only is unjust to a brave, true, and patriotic people, but that people can defy that power, and they can conquer, and they can triumph. That sounds a lot like Thomas Jefferson, because he's echoing what the founding generation said, a man who's directly descended from the founding generation. We need to remember that. Until next time, good day. Mm-hmm.